The scripture reading today is from Genesis 15, 1 through 12, and 17 through 18. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look, look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over the other. But he did not cut them, he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Amen. Uh, Thank you, Vicki. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you this morning. We continue this morning in in a series of sermons. We're going to be preaching all throughout the Old Testament narrative passages. Uh, We're in the middle of the life of Abraham. Now, we're going to fast forward. We're only going to talk about Abraham in three scenes. And so that might be surprising to some of you since we took so long in Genesis 1 through 11. But uh, for our purposes this morning, this is an amazing story here in Genesis chapter 15 that is really, really central and really crucial uh, for us understanding how God uh, keeps covenant with his people. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, the New Testament writers, and we, and we saw it there in Romans 4 as Jonathan read to us that passage, uh, the New Testament calls Christians the children of Abraham. That means that our faith in Jesus brings us into Abraham's line even though we may not naturally descend from him. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, right? We know this. But he is the spiritual father of all who believe in Jesus and follow him. So these stories, I say that to say, these stories in Abraham's life here have direct application to our lives as well. And remember where we are in the midst of this story. Genesis 1 through 11 paint a pretty bleak picture of the world we live in. And then there's a turn, there's a shift in the momentum, right, to use a sports analogy. In chapter 12, and we're introduced to this man Abraham and his family, and we're told that they are to be the solution to all of the world's troubles. It is through Abraham and the nation of people that will come from him that God is going to bring blessing and salvation to all the peoples of the earth. Now, a couple of weeks ago I mentioned that one of the unavoidable features of the story of redemption as it unfolds throughout the rest of the the first book of the Bible is this idea of election. And I know just the mention of that word causes some of you to cringe, but as I said, it's, it's here, it's unavoidable, and it's really important. So let me just comment for just a minute on what I mean. 
The trouble that we have with that, with that word, with the idea of election, is often because we've turned it into a matter of theology when in the Bible it's a matter of mission. We've seen, again, in chapters 1 through 11, that God has a dream for the world, but how does he intend to turn that dream into reality? The answer is through Abraham and the children of Abraham. He shows grace to Abraham in order to make him the conduit through which his grace and mercy and salvation might go to the ends of the earth. Okay? Now, the passage Jeff preached last week in chapter 12 is dominated by the idea of mission, that God gave Abraham and his family, and therefore us, a mission. The early Christians conceived of the church as the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, and therefore the book of Acts in the New Testament, if you've read that recently, is also dominated by the idea of mission because the church is defined by its mission. Okay, And that's a problem because in in many cases, particularly in the West, American Christians tend to think of Christianity in terms of their individual and personal experience. And so they approach church, they approach spiritual things like consumers who have particular needs and wants and desires, and they expect to get those things met by the church. That's just wrong. Salvation is a cosmic event. That's what we learn. And this is why, see, I'm bringing up and I'm risking, uh, you know, the, the conversation about this idea of election again. If you're a Christian, it's because at some point God interrupted your life, just like he does to Abraham here in Genesis, Right? Abraham's going, minding his own business, going about his life, and then God comes and says, Abraham, you know, leave and go to this place, I'll show you. Okay, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, he said in his letter to the Philippians, he said, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And if you know Paul's story, you know Paul's literally on the road to Damascus, and he's going to the city to arrest and persecute and even kill the Christians uh, who were worshiping there, and then God took hold of him. The Lord Jesus literally laid his hands on Paul and redirected his life. And for the rest of his life, Paul says, he spent all of his time and energy trying to fulfill the purpose of Jesus' grace and mercy toward him. I press on to take hold of that for which he took hold of me. See, God's grace and blessing has a purpose in your life. You're not a grace cul-de-sac, right? It's not supposed to end with you. You, you, are, you, we are, to be, you are to be a grace superhighway. That like Abraham, you would be a conduit through which the love of God can flow into the lives of the people and the places that he's called you to. So, see, to become a Christian then means your life gets swept up into the mission that the Lord gave to Abram. And to all of his spiritual children, you live life on mission. But what that also means, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning. To live life on mission means also that you live life by faith. And that's the second dominant feature of the Abram narratives here in Genesis. Now, play a word association game with me for a minute, okay? I'll give you a name, and I don't, you can say it out loud if you want to, or I don't know how this is going to go. But anyway, if I were to say Jim Carrey. Silly, right? That's my word. Silly. Funny. Right? This Sheldon Cooper, if you even know who that is. Nerd. Right? That's, 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 that's what that one is. William Wallace from Braveheart. Right? Manly or courage or whatever you might say. Okay? Samson in the, in the Old Testament. My word's just muscles. 
right? The Apostle Paul, church planting. But if we were to do the same thing with Abram, what would the word association with Abram be? Abraham, the, the word above any other word would be faith. And therefore, just, just like what characterizes Abraham more than anything else is faith, what should characterize all of his spiritual children is also faith. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, says, makes this just the statement, the righteous shall live by faith. All those who follow uh, God, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who put their faith and trust in him, live by faith. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. It's this predominant theme all throughout the scripture that if you follow Jesus, if you follow God in Christ Jesus, if you believe in God in Christ Jesus, then what will be true of you is you will live a life of faith. Now, if you want a picture of what I mean by this, and the cheese ball factor is going through the roof, okay, this morning, I, I apologize, I, but nevertheless, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which was uh, not the best of the Indiana Jones movies, but by far not the worst, uh, one of the, at, at the very end of the movie, if you remember, they get into the, the, the temple there where the, um, the Holy Grail is, and Sean Connery's character, who's Indy's father, gets shot, and Indy has to go through and pass these three tests in order to find the Holy Grail, in order to save his father. And, and the second of the three tests is what's called the leap of faith. And if you might remember, I don't know if you do or not, but anyway, if you don't, he comes to this, uh, Indy comes to this great chasm, and it's too wide for him to jump across. I mean, there's literally no way for him to get to the other side. And he realizes, and he's got his father's journal, and he's quoting the scripture, he realizes the only way to get across the chasm is to take a leap of faith. But literally, it go, it's one of these, you know, these movie things where you look down and, like, there's no end to that thing down there. I mean, who knows how far that thing goes down into the middle of the earth. And so he, he, he has no choice, but he kind of puts the book here at his chest and closes his eyes, and he does one of these things right here. Right? Do you remember the scene? Anybody? Help me, please. I don't want to feel alone up here. Thank you. Okay. Good. You're with me. Right? So he steps out into the chasm, but instead of falling into the abyss, of course, his foot lands on a bridge that has previously been hidden from his sight. And then, of course, he steadies himself, and he walks across this invisible bridge. Now, that is a perfect picture for what the Bible means by living by faith, not by sight. And Abraham is the perfect example. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, he's the example. And so this morning, all I want to do is I want to just take that metaphor and work it out, okay? I told you the cheese ball factory through the uh, factor through the roof. Okay, we're just we're, this is a sermon on the Indiana Jones movie, right? That scene in particular. Three parts of that metaphor that I want to kind of tease out with you. Okay, I want to talk about the gap, and then I want to talk about the leap, and then I want to talk about ultimately the bridge. And it really the three parts of the sermon are really this: uh, why 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 a life of mission requires faith, what the faith is that's required of us, and then lastly, how do we get it, okay? So that's kind of what we're teasing out. Why the life of, a life of mission requires faith, that's, that's the gap. What it is, and that's the leap, and then how we get it, and that's the bridge that carries us across. Okay, so let's, let's talk about these things together for a few minutes. First, uh, the gap. Abraham faced a similar situation to the one Indiana Jones found himself in. Look at how the passage starts. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, after what things? And see, this is the problem with skipping ahead, but we've got to deal with it because this is the way we're going to approach this. Uh, in chapter 14, Abram has rescued his nephew Lot from an alliance of tribal chieftains that sacked the city of Sodom where Lot was living and carried Lot and his family off 
as plunder. And now he, and Abraham has gone after him. He's defeated these tribal chieftains. He's come back, and now he's scared to death. He's afraid of retaliation. I mean, who's going to come and attack him now that he's done this? And so the Lord comes to him and says, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I'll protect you. I'll fight for you. I'll, I'll take care of you. And God initiating this with Abram absolutely sets him off. Look at verse 2. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Now let me paraphrase what Abram's saying at this point. And I'm going to be a little exaggerated, okay? I know I can tend to be a little exaggerated, okay? But it's on purpose and it's useful here. So bear with me. God's saying to Abraham, don't worry, Abraham. And I'm going to, Abram, Abraham, his name gets changed, okay? So if I go back and forth, please don't, don't hold it against me, okay? Don't worry, Abram. I'll protect you. You don't have anything to be afraid of. And then Abraham responds with something like this. Are you kidding me? You remember all those things you promised me back when I left Ur? You promised to bless me and make my name great. You promised me a land. You promised me a son. And oh, by the way, none of that stuff's happened yet. And here I am on the run, cowering from my enemies, childless. So why should I trust you now? I mean, why should I believe you? You say all these things about what you're going to do in my life. How can I know you'll do what you say you'll do? And what I want you to see is that that question is not unique to Abram. That is the question underneath all of our struggles to orient our life to God's mission. I mean, this is the garden all over again. Remember, how did the serpent get Adam and Eve to, to go against God and act on their own? Do you remember? You sure? that you can trust him. Seems to me like he's holding out on you. I mean, that's some pretty good fruit over there, and he's told you you can't have that, right? It's this, it's this eroding of, of trust in the Lord that derails Adam and Eve in the mission they've given them. And it's the same thing with the people to whom Moses is writing this account in Genesis. Remember, he's writing this to Israel on the verge of their going into the promised land to fulfill the mission which God had given them when he redeemed them out of Egypt and sent them in there. And they've already gone in, and they've looked, and they've seen the people in there are pretty powerful. They're giants among those people in there. Lord, how, how can we know, how can we know that you will do for us once we go in there what you've promised to do? And for you and I, and I, and I don't have time, and I, and I didn't have the time this week because we were on vacation to really tease this out in a way, but I, I, I don't have time to uncover for you, but I really want you to think That is the issue every single one of us in the room are facing. I mean, where where you're up against uh, a wall and you can't seem to break through in your own spiritual journey, I I would just suggest to you, if you start to dig deep enough, you're going to eventually hit rock bottom, and the rock bottom is going to be something like a question in your heart that goes something like, God, I'm not sure I can really trust that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And you see, the reason, the reason Abram is so full of fear and doubt in this particular situation is because of what I've called the gap. Indiana Jones comes to the end of the tunnel and there's this great chasm between where he was and where he needed to be and there was no way for him to get across. And that's the gap. And in the same way, there's a huge gap for Abram between his present circumstances and the life that God had promised him and there's no way across Right? Present circumstances. He's on the run. 
He's weak, not strong. He's childless. He's old as dirt. He's married to a barren woman. She's old as dirt. And the likelihood of her bearing him a son is diminishing by the day. Right? That's his present circumstances. And that's a lot to deal with, right? Good day, bad day? Pretty bad day. Okay? The promise of God. Abram, I will make your name great. (laughs) Right? You're going to be a military power in the land. I'm going to give you a son. Look at the stars, Abram. Your, your descendants will outnumber the stars in the heaven. There's this huge gap between what Abram is experiencing life to be and what God has promised it to be for him. And it's because of that gap. It's because of that gap that Abraham has a crisis of faith here. Now, here's the problem. When you read the scripture... And you see the way that God deals with his people. One unavoidable conclusion that you must come to is that God, in working to save his people, does not work to lessen the gap. If anything, whenever God begins to work in the life of somebody, uh, his working in their life only succeeds in widening the gap that already existed. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um. Abram in Genesis, I don't, Jeff, I didn't get to listen to all of Jeff's sermon last week yet, but I, and I don't know if he, if he broached this topic with you, but one of my favorite, this is just my favorite, absolute, I laugh at this because it's so true of my life and, and the people that I, you know, talk to and work with, but in, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, and if you want to flip back there, you can, but you remember all those things God said to Abram, and, and he says, you know, leave, leave your father and your mother, leave your family, leave the life you know, and let's go on a journey. I'm going to take you to this land uh, and it's going to be great. I'm going to make you great there. I'm going to bless you. It is going to be amazing. And you have to think that Abraham had all of these ideas in his head about what it was going to be like. If I obey God, we're going to go, and it's just going to be great. And if you read that passage, it's so startling. You keep reading down, and you have all of these expectations of what's going to happen to Abram once he leaves and gets to the land of promise that God is sending him to, and he gets there. And then in verse 10 of chapter 12, the very first thing that happens to Abram once he, he's, okay, he's obedient, he leaves, he follows the Lord, he does what God tells him, and then in verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. Are you kidding me? Abram, it's going to be great. And he goes, he obeys, he moves out in faith, not knowing where he's going, and the first thing he experiences is a famine. And I would just tell you, that's, that's not coincidence, that's providence, that is the way God works with his people. Think about the story of Gideon, if you're familiar with that story in the New Testament, right? God comes to Gideon, his people have been, um, have been ruled by the Midianites, the Midianite army is occupying the land, the writer of Judges says that the camels and the army are so numerous that they were like the grains of sand on the seashore. I mean, it's just this massive army that's aligned against God's people. God came, came to Gideon, he commissions him, sends him out against this vast army that was compared to, you know, like a swarm of locusts. And Gideon has 40,000 men. He's terribly undermatched. Not great odds. And then God begins to work, and the marvelous thing that God does is he takes Gideon's 40,000 men and he turns them into 300. And then my favorite part is when he decides to arm these 300 men that are going out with Gideon. He does not give them spears and swords and shields. He gives them trumpets and torches. See, he's intentionally widening the gap. Okay, and it's, and it's not just a one-time deal. This happens over and over and over again in the stories we read 
in the scripture. And in all of them, the common theme is, is God's power that saves his people, not their power. They're weak. It's God's power that saves his people, but they only come to know his power through their weakness. And the way God drills home this lesson to his people is he comes to work where there's a gap. And instead of lessening the gap, instead of closing the gap, his first move in the life of the person he's teaching to live by faith is he actually widens the gap. To, to I, I think, to just thwart any sense of I've got some strategy that's going to get me across this thing. Until they have no choice but to turn to him. And the reason God works this way, I'm absolutely convinced, is because salvation works this way. See, we're not saved because we are good or because we do good. We do not inherit the kingdom of heaven by being strong, but by being weak. And there's, there's a great chasm, see, between what God demands of us and what we are able to perform in our own strength. Listen to what the Bible says. It says things like, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Philippians 2, do nothing, do nothing, not do only if you think, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And I read those passages, and, I, and, it, and it feels to me like trying to run a marathon when I get winded after a 100-yard dash. I can't do it. And that's the point. And the way God teaches us the spiritual lesson of the way salvation works is circumstantially he works in our lives in the same exact way. And so we come across these gaps. But there's a second thing. Not only the, the, the gap between promise and reality, okay? But the second thing is I want, you to see, I want you to see the leap. And it's right here in verse 6. The Lord takes Abram out, shows him the stars in the heavens. Number them if you're able to. And then he says to them, so shall your offspring be. And then in verse 6, this great statement of faith. And, and Abram believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, an interesting feature of the Abraham stories is that it is an up and down journey for our man Abram. He starts out strong in chapter 12. By the end of chapter 12, he's not doing so well. Okay, then again in chapter 14, he, there's this, there's this um, high moment. Then in chapter 15 and 16, there are real low points in his life. It's really back and forth. It's up and down. And, and that feature of the text really illustrates what the life of faith is like. It's so fragile. You have to fight for it, right? And so here in chapter 15, he's despairing. He's cynical. Do you see that? He's shrinking back. He's giving up. He, he's given up hope that God can ultimately do what he said he would do for him. The impossibility of the situation that's before him is just too much for him. And, so, and I, want, I want you to see, that's not faith. This shrinking back, this cynicism or, or this despair that Abraham feels and the fear and the doubt and the confusion and all of these things. Faith is fighting through that, but that, that, that initially isn't faith. But then what happens is, in the very next chapter, he becomes determined. He gets impatient, right? You might remember this part of the story. He resorts to his own strength, to his own virility, literally, to get things done. He's tired of waiting on God for a son, and so Sarah comes to him with an idea. I have a maidservant over here. Why don't you uh, go in to be with her, and through her we'll get the child that God has promised us. Let's do it in our own strength, Abram. He's self-reliant. He's self-confident, and that's not faith either. Right? So in chapter 15, he's despairing. In chapter 16, he's determined, but here... Right here in this verse, verse 6, for this brief moment, and that's really what it feels like, 
in this one moment, he leaps. Just like he did in chapter 12 when the Lord said go, and he went not knowing where he was going, he leaps. Right? Faced with the impossibility of his situation, old age, a barren wife, no son, all of these things, he believed. And what that means is, is he didn't allow his weakness to define his reality. For this brief moment, he did not give in to despair. He did not resort to determination. He leapt into the strong arms of God saying, I don't know how you're going to do this, Lord. I can't see how it's going to happen, but I trust you. See, faith is the opposite of self-reliance. It's confidence in God to bridge the gap by his power. It's not self-confidence. It's God-confidence. Faith is, faith is feeling your weakness, your helplessness. Faith is staring down the gap and then leaping, knowing that you're falling into the strong and gracious arms of God. Now, wow, I told you it was going to be cheesy this morning, didn't I? And that sounds cheesy, doesn't it? What does that mean? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said that faith means you stop being confident about your own efforts. You actually begin to despair of doing anything for yourself. And when that happens, all you can do is leave it to God. But Lewis is very quick to say, let me explain that because they're back to cheesiness again, okay? But what does that mean? Leave it to God. And here's what C.S. Lewis meant. And this, this, I hope this statement lands on you uh, the way it landed on me. Faith means we put all our trust in God to make good our deficiencies in Christ. Isn't that great? Is that, does that just put a smile on anybody's face besides me? Does that fill your heart with hope? Faith means we put all of our trust in God to make good our deficiencies in Christ. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller tells the story of a time where he's really depressed about the lack of spiritual progress he was seeing in his kids. And of course, I can't relate at all to that particular situation. He was really discouraged. Um, And then as he thought about it more, it got better for him. He realized that all the things he was discouraged about in his kids were the things they learned from him. <laughs> and of course, again, I don't have any experience in this, but um, so, but the story struck me. And, and really what happened was is he became even more depressed. He sulked around for a few days until he had a very important revelation. And this is why I love uh, to, to sit under his teaching. This is how he put it. He said, I realized God wanted me depressed about myself so that I could be encouraged about his son. See, what Paul realized was the source of his discouragement was his weakness. He was discouraged because there was a problem and he was weak. He couldn't fix the problem. But of course, if you dig, what that means is is that he was still looking to himself and not looking to Jesus for help. His hope was that he would come up with a solution, right? He goes on to quote a letter uh, from Jesus Christ written by a 6th century monk. And this is Jesus speaking personally to us. So just listen to the words of Jesus as I think he would say them to us this morning. He, again, I know those moods when you sit there utterly alone, pining, eaten up with unhappiness in a pure state of grief. This near despair and self-pity are actually a form of pride. What you think was a state of absolute security from which you've fallen was really trusting too much in your own strength and ability. But I don't want you to rely on your own strength and abilities and plans. I want you to distrust them and to distrust yourself, and to trust me and no one and nothing else. As long as you rely entirely on yourself, you're bound to come to grief. You still have a most important lesson to learn. Despair of yourself, but you must never despair of me. 
Paul Miller goes on to say that it is this, that it was this experience of despairing of myself and feeling my weakness and need and then turning to God for help that is the doorway to an experience of God's power of God's power that's the leap that's the leap of faith faith is feeling your weakness and your need and whatever you're up against or whatever see whatever the demands of the mission are right whatever whatever God is calling you out in love towards other people to do faith is feeling your weakness and need but not losing courage and shrinking back because your confidence is not in your strength to begin with. Now let me apply this in a couple ways and then come to the last point. See, let me, let me just say this. The righteous, according to Habakkuk 2, the righteous shall be saved by faith. In other words, this, what I'm describing is the very way you become a Christian. You're not a Christian until you're weak. You're not a Christian until you come to the end of yourself and you cry out to God, I have nowhere else to go, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, righteousness, what we learn here, look there, verse 6, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, and then all the things that, that um, Paul has to say about that verse there in, in um, Romans chapter 4, righteousness is what God gives to you, not what you give to God. Abraham's faith, he believed He had faith, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. And his faith was his leaning into God's strength to make good his deficiencies in Christ Jesus, whom he didn't even know, but he knew was coming. The righteous are saved by faith, but not only that, the righteous then shall live by faith. And so let me just say it this way to you, missionally, the kinds of things God would call you to as a family, as a couple, as an individual, as a teenager, whatever it might be, missionally, you're not limited by your weakness. In, in fact, to live by faith means you intentionally take on circumstances that make you vulnerable and weak. When you do that, see, when you move, when, when you, instead of avoiding pain, instead of avoiding inconvenience, instead of avoiding discomfort and hard, you know, hard life, when you move toward need, when you move into weakness, that is the leap of faith. And the promise is that in every move we make toward weakness, God will come and he will make good any deficiency we have according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But if you're like me, you say, man, that's scary. So how can you, so, you know, so we're back to the question that Abraham poses in verse 2 and then again down later in the passage. How can I know? Lord, how, how can I be sure? I mean, is that really what you're calling me to? And, and I want to say to you as your pastor and friend, I absolutely believe that is the kind of thing the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit would call and initiate in every single life in this room. That we would be looking for opportunities to move into places of vulnerability and weakness for the sake of the mission. And if so, then how can we know? How can we be sure that once we go there, he's going to come and he's going to meet us at our deficiency and need and provide for us in his strength and provision? And the answer is there's a bridge that can carry us across the gap, even as it widens. We may not be able to see it, but it's there. If only our hearts could wake up to the reality of what happens down here at the bottom of this page. So let's look down at at the bottom of this chapter. I want you to see in particular, beginning in verse 9 down here, the Lord's response to Abraham's question, questions in verse 9, is just this. See, Abraham Abraham says, verse 2, Lord, what what will you give me? 
And then down again in verse 7, even after he believes, you know, in verse 6, and it's counted to him as righteousness, the Lord comes to him again in verse 7, and again in verse 8, Abram has this question, how, you know, how can I be sure? How am I to know that this will happen? And then in verse 9, the Lord says, bring me a heifer, a female goat, a ram, and so on. And Abram took the animals, and here's what we're told. He cut those animals in two. He laid them out so that there was a little pathway in between the animals that had been cut in two. And, and, and what the biblical scholars tell us is that this is a very typical ceremony for ancient peoples. Ancient peoples, they, there weren't, they, they didn't live in, in written cultures. There weren't contracts that were written out, right, chiseled on stone or whatever Fred Flintstone might do with those things, right? They, they enacted the contracts they made with one another. We write them down and take them to a lawyer and have everybody sign them and all that stuff. They enacted them. And what's happening here, we're told, is that God is making covenant with Abram. And what would happen in a covenant ceremony, much, you know, the, the, probably the most similar thing is, is like a wedding ceremony or, or something like that in our own culture. But what would happen was the parties making a covenant would agree on the stipulations and the responsibilities of the covenant. So you'll do this, and I'll do this, and, and you know, and here's what your part, and here's my part, and we hammer all that out. And then what they would do is they would... They would they would, uh, together, they would walk through, uh, they would take animals like this and, and cut them in two and slaughter them and all the blood and all that you can imagine. And then together they would walk through the pieces. And by walking through the pieces in between, you know, the cow that's been split in two, by walking through the pieces, they were, what they were saying is, is they were, in, they were enacting their pledge. They were saying, if I fail to keep my word, if I fail to fulfill all that I am promising to do for you today in this covenant, may I be cut into like these animals. Right? What a person, when a person walked through the pieces, he was making himself accountable to pay the penalty for failure, which was symbolized in the death and the splitting in two of these animals. Now, think about that for a minute. That God would do this with Abram is remarkable. Isn't it? That he would condescend like this to meet Abram in his weakness and, and not say, shame on you, Abram, for being so full of doubt. I mean, God's not afraid of our doubt. He's not afraid. He loves the prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He loves that prayer. And here he condescends to Abram to meet him in his weakness and to offer him a wonderful show of his love and commitment that is truly amazing. But that's not all. See, there are... There are a couple things. There are two things about what happens here in this covenant ceremony that are truly remarkable. And the first thing, the first thing about this scene that is absolutely remarkable is who passes through the pieces. Look there in verse 12. Darkness falls. The commentators say there's a darkness in the darkness. There was a darkness, a horror, a dread, a terror that came over Abram. And then Verse 17, there appeared a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch of the FDSV. It's probably different in other translations. And the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passed through the pieces. Now, what in the world is that? It's very intentional wording. In Exodus chapter 19, God comes down. God himself comes down on Mount Sinai to meet with his people. And we read in verse 18, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord descended on it in fire. It's the same two words. God, the Lord comes down on the mountain and there's smoke and fire or flame. And then again, in the Exodus story, as God leads his people out of Egypt and throughout their journey to the promised land, he appears to them as, you remember this, as a pillar of what? Smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Same two words. So what we have here in this covenant ceremony 
is the emblems of God's glory presence. God himself comes. Oh God, I mean, I'm literally, I'm sorry, I'm getting chills. Just, I mean, God is coming down to meet with Abram and he passes through the pieces. And what he's saying is, Abram, I will be faithful. I will give you a son. I will give you a land. I will fulfill all my promises to you. If I don't, may it be done to me like these animals. If I fail to keep my covenant with you, may I be cut in two and die. You see, that's not all. Because I know at least for me, my fears and doubts don't really rest uh, in the fact that I don't think God will come through. My real fears are about myself. <laughs> and if the covenant God makes with us is, you will be my people and I will be your God, I'm pretty confident most times that God will come through for me. I know he's able to be my God, but I don't know that I'll ever be his person. I don't know if I can do that. I'm weak. I'm going to fail. I'm going to screw things up. It's unavoidable. And that's why the second part of the covenant ceremony is so special to me personally. Because see, the second remarkable thing about this scene is who doesn't pass through the pieces. God goes through, and the covenant's made. And Abraham doesn't take his turn walking through the pieces. And that is, and all of the commentators say, that is absolutely startling. Because in the ancient Near Eastern covenant ceremonies between a king and his vassal, sometimes the king would go through the pieces along with the servant if he was really nice. But all of the emphasis was on the servant and his responsibilities to the king. So most of the time, the king didn't even bother to go through the pieces, just the servant, but not this covenant ceremony and not this king. This covenant ceremony, in this one, the servant doesn't even go through the pieces. Only the king does. And here's what that means. God is saying, Abram, I will bless you. All that I've said I will do for you, I will do. And if I should fail to keep my part of the covenant, May I be cut in two, but Abram, if you should fail to keep your part of the covenant with me, may I be cut in two. God has taken responsibility for his part and for our part. This is a one-sided covenant. And if you're a spiritual child of Abraham, then this covenant remains in effect for you. God would say to you this morning, and I hope this will fill your heart with hope. However you would apply this to your own heart and life this morning, he would come to you and he would say to you, if I fail to keep covenant with you, I will take the consequences. But if you fail to keep covenant with me, I will take the consequences for you. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Centuries later, darkness came down again. And it was so great and so dreadful that it blotted out the sun in the middle of the day. And Jesus was hanging upon the cross when the darkness enveloped him and it filled his heart with terror and dread and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now what's happening there? Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. That's the language of covenant curse. Jesus is there dying in our place, bearing our covenant curse because of our sin and rebellion. All that God did here in Genesis 15 coming down upon Jesus there we failed to keep covenant with God, every one of us, but there on the cross, Jesus is making good on God's promise not only to bear the responsibility for his part of the covenant, but also for ours. And if that truth, if that scene of Jesus 
being cut in two because back here in Genesis 15, the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch pass through the pieces. If you come to see that he's there on your behalf, then here's what that can do in your heart. Let me just finish by this. You can be absolutely sure God will not fail you. He can't. It is more likely that the sun doesn't come up tomorrow than that God fails you and fails to keep his word to you. But even better news, you cannot fail you. Is that good news? Your sins and failures cannot get in the way of God's blessing you and fulfilling all his words to you. I mean, every other religion... Every other approach to living confidently forces you to pass through the pieces. It's all about you, your performance. Find self-confidence, right? That's how you overcome the lack of confidence. Get self-confidence, but not the gospel. The gospel is all about what God does for us, not what we do for him. Our confidence is in him, not in our strength. His strength, his spirit, his love, his commitment to us. And here's why this is so important for the mission. Life is full of those Indiana Jones moments. I mean, they're on a daily basis, right? Nobody's caring for me, so I'm just going to sit here and wither away and just feel sorry for myself because nobody, right? No, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to build community with people. I'm not going to sit here and, right? You know, my, my, my parents are aging, and somebody's got to take care of them. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to bear that responsibility. I mean, there are a thousand different, there are a thousand different we we have a we have a lady in our church that has that came to me. This is this is the fun fun strange weird part about being a pastor. We have a lady in our church who's come and said, "I've got a friend. She's got two. Uh, she's got uh, a, a little girl that's about to give birth to twins, and God told me that somebody in our church is going to adopt those twins. Right? So who's going to do that? Well, I can't. I listen. I can't. I've got four kids. Okay. <laughs> somebody else has got right. But do you, do you see that? Right. That, I mean, I, <laughs> no, right? But wait, do I believe that if I take on that, there is enough grace on the other side that God's going to make whatever deficiencies I find good according to his riches in Christ Jesus? Do you, I'm just, I, I don't, again, I, I'm not prepared to tease out all of these things, but do you see? Life is full of these kinds of moments, and if every time you're confronted with a moment like that, if you're knee-jerk, impulse is to shrink back instead of leaping, then you'll have a nice, comfortable, safe, pain-free, manageable, small life. Can I be your friend? That's not what it means to live as a spiritual child of Abraham. And if you're a Christian, that's not the life that God has chosen and called and saved and blessed you for. The battle cry of William Carey, the father of the modern missions movement, was expect great things from God, attempt great things from God, for God. Expect great things from him, attempt great things for him. That's, see, that's the battle cry of the spiritual children of Abraham. And that's the kind of movement in our lives that will, that will change a city. And there's only one way you can live with that battle cry. You have to have an answer to the questions in verse 2 and verse 7. Lord, how can I know? The flaming pot, the smoking torch, they passed through the pieces and Abraham didn't. The Lord would say to us, if you fail, 
may it be done to me. If I fail, may it be done to me. The sun is, it is more likely the sun will not come up tomorrow than that God will not meet you at your place of weakness. Now, can we let that propel us into a life of mission? Let's pray. Father, thank you. I truly thank you for these amazing stories that you've given to us uh, as an encouragement to our faith. I, I just am overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed at the thought of the glory emblems of the God of heaven coming down in Abraham's presence and passing through the pieces to say, today I make covenant with you and I will, be, I will make good on my promises and I will make good on your failures. Oh, how that comforts my heart. It takes away every excuse that I might have for living this small, safe, comfortable life that I try to craft for myself. Forgive us, Father, for aiming the trajectory of our lives at, at, at the kind of life that would be good for us, but that would not ultimately result in blessing for our city. Lead us to repentance and fill our hearts with faith so that we might um, become people who would bear fruit. Uh, the fruit of lives of faith, of trust in you, being weak, and, and embracing circumstances that make us weak and vulnerable so that you might be strong for us and you might gain the glory. Uh, we long, I long for us to live those kinds of lives. And so come and do that work in us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our, um, our, the liturgy of our service is intended to, to lead us to this point where uh, we offer a benediction, but what the benediction really is is a commissioning. We are being sent out, right? We are God's people gathered together. In order to be sent out, to live uh, as the spiritual children of Abraham on mission to the people and the places that he sends us. But as we go, the reason we end with a benediction is because Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples, and surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. And so as you go, you can know that God promises to go with you. He has pledged himself to you upon pain of death, and indeed in Jesus' death he has made good his promise that not only would he be faithful to you, but that in your unfaithfulness he will meet all of your deficiencies according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He will not fail you. Even you cannot fail you. So uh, reach out and receive the promise of this benediction and then leap, trusting that you fall into the strong arms of God. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.